You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening, hi, hello, this is Plato's Cave on 3RRR, 102.7. This is a film criticism show that's going to come your way for the next hour. My name is Thomas Caldwell and I'm joined in the cave by Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller-Nicholas all at once. Say hello. 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 There we go. That's the most synchronised we've been all year. <laughs> uh, good to have you all here t- tonight, uh, you in the cave and everybody listening. This is our second last show as a group. We're going to be doing a best of the year show or our favourites of the year show next week. And I- I'm going to come back by myself the week after and just play you all the music of 2015 as heard in film. All the music in one hour. That Every is a challenge. Every single piece the of music. Mega mix. <laughs> There'll be a lot of, yeah. That's a serious editing you've got ahead of you, Thomas. <laughs> There'll be a lot of stuff played at once, played <laughs> triple speed. Jive Bunny style. Oh, yes. God, you remember Jive Bunny really as well. Yeah. Come on, everybody. Come on, everybody. <laughs> We're all showing our age. A lot of people, possibly under 30, are very confused right now. In their heads, what's going on? And, and I, uh, I completely failed to make any big deal out of this or notify the station about this or any of the above, but this is our 200th episode. Um, no wonder we feel old. Yeah, according Jeez. according to the iTunes, uh, according to the list on iTunes. Anyway, I mean, I think there were one or two shows we didn't podcast because maybe they were radiothon shows or they were just rubbish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a couple of best of shows we did in 2011 for some reason. We thought that would be a good idea. It's funny for us, just no one else liked them. No, that's right. Yeah, we, had, we even had bloopers at the end of one of our shows. We, Plato's Cave began as a podcast 200 episodes ago, so it's been much less than that actually live on air. But yeah. 200 shows in total. Josh, you and I have been there from the beginning. and High fives all round. Yeah, so go us. But let's turn our attention to tonight's show. We're going to start off on the road with David Foster Wallace as played by Jason Siegel in the American drama The End of the Tour. And then to Germany in the aftermath of World War II, where a Holocaust survivor with a new face, courtesy of reconstructive surgery, finds herself having to impersonate herself in the German drama Phoenix. And finally, we'll head back on the road in America again as we join gamblers Ben Mendelssohn and Ryan Reynolds on their way to make their fortune in a Mississippi grind. But let's start with the end of the tour. Alex, I know you've been really, really looking forward to this film. I have feelings and emotions about this film. I have a uh, pretty deep personal investment, I think it's fair to say, in David Foster Wallace, the author, academic and bandana-wearing legend who committed suicide in 2008 after living with quite severe mental health issues for many, many years. Um, his his passing had a obviously had a very devastating effect on on a lot of people, um, a lot of his fans, myself included. In this context, I was pretty conflicted actually about both reading his posthumously published book, The Pale King, that was nominated for a Nobel Prize for Literature in 2012, and also seeing this film. And I think it's worth saying from the outset that End of the Tour has been kind of rejected by his uh, the editor that he worked with, his long term editor. Uh, his family, his estate—they've—they've they've all kind of said, "No, no, no. This is not. David would not have liked this. He—he he was a shy man. He would really have hated this." So th- this film does not have the blessing of those people. Um, director James Ponsoldt's *End of the Tour* is based on a 2010 book by novelist and Rolling Stone contributing editor David Lipsky, uh, played in the film by Jesse Eisenberg. And um, the book's called *Although, of course, you end up becoming yourself: A Road Trip with David Foster Wallace*. 
Wallace, of course, played by Jason Seagull. I knew I was going to... Seagull, Seagull. Let's go with Seagull. (laughs) All right. And the book, like the film, follows the five-day road trip Lipsky and Wallace took at the end of the press tour for Wallace's iconic 1996 novel, Infinite Jest. Now, I could talk at length about Infinite Jest alone. Um, This is a novel that Time magazine listed as one of the best 100 English-language novels between 1923 and 1925. Um, I could also talk about The Pale King, not to mention his numerous short stories and non-fiction works. If you're new to him and you're anywhere near a computer, I'd recommend an entry point is do a quick search for a piece, a non-fiction piece Wallace wrote called Consider the Lobster. Um, It's probably a perfect entry point into his work. I'm not a critic, so I'm not going to kind of endlessly talk about Wallace's um, literary credentials. Um, Instead, I'm going to point you to a recent review that appeared at the end of the tour on the Sydney Review of Books by James Lee. Um, This comes at at this material from a really literary angle in terms of adaptation and things like that. It's a really beautiful piece that I can't recommend strongly enough. But what I will say is this, is that this film did really surprise me. I think I was quite, as I said, I was quite hesitant. I really didn't know if, if I was comfortable with watching this film in the circumstances. Um, but it did something that I really didn't think it was, was capable of doing, which it made me feel in a small way the same kind of sense of beauty and humour and the inevitability of loss that I experienced reading Wallace's best work. There's a scene at the end of the film, and this isn't really a spoiler, it's kind of one of those nothing nothing something moments it's not really an action narrative moment but um Lipsky played by Eisenberg is is racing around he's about to leave Wallace's house and he's doing a quick run around the house with his dictaphone just scrambling and reading uh, speaking into his dictaphone everything he sees he's desperately trying to paint a picture with words of everything that he sees so things like what posters are on the wall what food cans are in the kitchen that kind of stuff it sounds like nothing but I found this such an oddly moving and powerful sequence there's something about the way that this was filmed and and Eisenberg's performance, this kind of desperate clinging to memory because we know that the moment, and I guess all moments, as we're living them, we know that they're doomed to pass. You know, he's obviously writing it as kind of writing notes, but we know that there's so much more intensity and so much more meaning going on in this. And the film is structured as Lipsky's memoirs or his memory of his time with Foster Wallace. Um, And the film begins with him finding out that that Wallace has uh, died. And I think that frames this film as just there's something so essentially human, even if you don't know Wallace's work. There's just something so so fundamentally human um, about this act of clawing at memories um, and kind of clinging to people and their spaces and their shapes and their smells, these things like hanging on to something that we know that we can't hang on to. And in the context of Wallace's life and, and in the context of his work, I mean, this is Mono Noarare via the Mall of America, and that's that's precisely what what Wallace's work did best. Um, uh, I knew next to nothing about David Foster Wallace. I knew the name of his most famous book, Infinite Jest, uh, which becomes the this fetishized object uh, in the. Uh, I think uh, when Lipsky embarks upon this quest, he may not even have quite completed reading it. It is uh, the, the weightiness of this tome is emphasised time and again in the course of the film, including by a, a radio interviewer who actually weighs it. I think it says it's three kilograms, three ounces, or something like that. It's uh, a thousand plus pages. I presume uh, the jest is is finite. Ultimately, is it, Alex? I don't know. I mean, what... oh, it's non. It's it's infinite. It never yeah. ends. Is, is it sort of Pinchon esque? Is that where what his shtick was, Wallace? I, uh, he falls into that realm, I guess, in terms of um, I wouldn't say genre, but yeah. I mean, to me, I, I prefer Wallace more than Pinchon. But yeah. Wasn't there a central theme to his writing that he was looking for a new form of sincerity? He was yes. trying to move beyond this 
this irony thing that we still seem hopelessly trapped in, new forms of sincerity and questioning what is the void within us that we... trying to feel are these some of the ideas he's wrestling with absolutely these, these um, and i think that that's what the film does so well is these questions of loss and memory and hanging on to something but the jest you know this this spirit of joy that can be lived through those moments it's not this heavy um and pynchon i think is probably a good reference point for that because i think some of pynchon's best work really this is turning into lit i'm going to start yeah, talking well he's referenced <laughs> in there um but yeah as, as characterized by jason siegel he's actually a pretty hangdog sort of figure extremely anxious about how he's going to be represented in this article that will eventually emerge from this uh author who um the the rolling stone journalist says himself a recently published author who just knows from the get-go that he's just not in the same class and that's the real um and it becomes an antagonism between them because one of one of them is desperately trying to understand the other and grasp at genius and this film is one of uh, a lot out there which you know, it's a it's a huge struggle to represent genius on screen. I I, I actually didn't recognise Jason Segel, um, Segel, Segel, Segel. <laughs> I don't know, I didn't even know who he was. I don't know how to pronounce his surname, which is only five letters long. It's not very infinite or very jesty, but it it was a quite a great, a strong performance. It really did give an impression of someone who was desperately anxious often pretty unhappy but seeking moments of joy in the mundane rather than anything terribly grand though part of that was well the film was uh, tiptoed a bit around whether his addiction issues were keyed into that and but because his addiction seemed to be to truly mundane and american uh quintessentially american 20th century things like television falcon's crest and the mall the mall of america not just any mall and mary tyler moore is a, an iconic figure um that you drive past and then don't go back to but um i I found this film interesting but not especially cinematic it's uh, the compositions throughout are very flat there's no depth to the image it's just a real gab fest which is fine because these actors are having a lot of fun with each other i think the one moment where it it drew me into the picture more was uh, a, a very uh a metatextual moment and a cinematic one at that when they're actually in a cinema and they're watching Broken Arrow and we could have a little think about whether um, David Lipsky thought himself something of a Christian Slater to uh, (laughs) David Foster Wallace's John Travolta, that sort of a sense of, yeah, one of them's made it and is the superstar and the other will always be someone who's an also-ran. And uh, I'm sure that's why that was included, because otherwise it could have been any old film. That's a really great reading of that scene. Yeah, that's that's what occurred to me. Otherwise, I didn't draw a huge amount from this film. I don't feel an aching desire to read David Foster Wallace's work, not least because it sounds actually intimidating at 1,100 pages and three kilos and three ounces weight of uh infinite jest 388 footnotes i think hell's bells there you go talking um that scene you mentioned the broken arrow sequence was really fascinating actually and not just because of that awesome analogy you've made between the two lead actors but because the eisenberg character isn't actually watching the screen he's watching um the foster wallace character to gauge his reaction and almost form some sort of judgment in terms of how wallace is responding to popular culture which becomes this increasing sort of i guess the source of the antagonism between them that he's he's somehow being fraudulent or false or inauthentic in terms of his everydayness and i thought that was fascinating and there are elements in this film and it seems to borrow from a number of genres one of them being the the road movie definitely the other being the buddy 
the buddy film it becomes almost like an anti-buddy film as the narrative um goes on and it reminded me a little bit of well not just almost famous in the beginning you know the the naive journalist who is sort of starstruck and, and begins a relationship with the subject of his impending article um and then increasingly there's the tension builds between the two of them and where that led me is almost towards frank and that that idea in Frank where you have a, someone who's a genuine creative talent and the other person becomes almost like a creative parasite who has the aspirations of creative genius but just doesn't cut it. And that becomes the source of the anger between them. And I think, for me, the strength of this film is not only Jason Siegel's performance. I thought he was really impressive. He went somewhere where I have never seen him go before and that was um, a strength. But the script, for me, the script was really nuanced. The, the dialogue, the conversation was really sort of smart without being smug. Like, it didn't it wasn't the winking to the audience. It wasn't trying to be ironic or metatextual or hip or cool. It was just two pseudo-intellectuals or an intellectual and a kind of this other sort of figure wrapped in jealousy going at it and and the way in which it keeps sort of bending towards these ethical issues about journalism and privacy. And uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the strip, even though I think you, you're right, it's not a particularly cinematic film, but I think the script is, is strong enough to kind of carry the weight of these of these two lead actors. I really love this film, and n- not having much familiarity with David Foster Wallace, I- except with just a general sense that he is this figure for a lot of people, and it, it has started to almost become a bit of a source of derision, like, you know, he, he is the quintessential writer for modern angsty 20-something-year-old year old guys, and which is something that's even addressed in this film. He's aware of of that baggage already already happening. Um, and I look, I, I've gone to see this film twice. I, I really, really loved it. And it's a it's the kind of film that almost shouldn't work because it's about two guys having an intellectual conversation about life and love and art and authenticity. <laughs> and it sounds excruciating on on, on paper, but um, it reminded me a little bit of my dinner with Andre, which is you know a similar idea about two people for the whole two men as well, two very straight men for the whole film talking about art and, and what is real. And I think that question of authenticity is really big in this film because it's something that Foster Wallace was, was writing about. This act of trying to get a story about him was an act of um, trying to find something authentic. You know, then there's the writing of the story and now we see a film made about this story. There's, there's all these layers. But at the core of it, it's two human beings having a really fascinating exchange in a very human exchange. I love the moments when they were petty, when they were both getting jealous of each other. Um, I, I love some of the intellectual one-upmanship that was going on with each other sort of accusing each other of being um, snobby or, or, or withholding their in, in intelligence, all that sort of thing. I love the early scenes where there's this real awkward attempt to just act like they're all they're totally cool and comfortable with each other, but, you know, Wallace is so guarded and, and, and defensive but trying to still be a nice, accommodating guy and, and Lipsky both wants his approval so much but he's also fiercely jealous so i think there's a real human drama that goes on in this and um and i think what you said alex about that that sequence at the end where lipsky is just frantically trying to find fragments or relics of who wallace is i think really captures maybe what this film is all about sort of you know wallace has gone and for those of for those of you who have read and loved him and for those of us who are new to him and as a result of seeing this film twice i now want to read everything he's written um yeah he, he's gone and we do want to grasp onto anything he left behind so i think we share that with with lipsky yeah i really was impressed by this film there are some cute funny things in this film the alanis morissette stuff oh, yeah. brought me 
infinite joy. Um, it, there's a scene in it where they're singing in a car, and it reminded me so much. Is it the trip in Italy? The um, Michael yep. Winterbottom, yeah, yeah. Of or I think there's almost identical scenes. Yes. And I thought these these would this would be the the most random yet perfect double bill would be the trip in. Is it the trip in Italy? Yeah, is that what it is. it's called. Yep. And and um, end of the tour. Um, I love. I mean, there's this there's this conversation where they're talking about Alanis Morissette, and they're kind of unpacking uh, Wallace's fanboyism. And and uh, Lipsky is sort of saying, you know, you're at a point now where you could feasibly meet her. How do you feel about that? And there's just some really just beautiful dialogue, as you said. This script, it's just very tight. This wonderful, really honest dialogue, I think, that comes out of that in terms of fame, identity, all of the things that the film seeks to touch on. Three, triple, R. Ah. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 102.7 FM and Phoenix is the film we are about to discuss. It's it's a new film by German director Christian Petzold. Once again, if, if you're familiar with Petzold's previous films such as Barbara and Yellow, the two ones I've seen, he, he likes to explore troubling aspects of Germany's past. And another common element of all these films is he always casts Nina Hoss, who's very much his muse, and she's once more playing the lead in Phoenix. This film set right after World War II. It begins with two Jewish women returning to Germany, um, a woman named Lini and her friend Nelly. Nelly's a former nightclub singer who had been in a concentration camp and she, she has been horribly disfigured from a gunshot wound to the face. When, we, when she's first introduced in the film, she's clearly in a lot of pain and all bandaged up, looking like a mummy. It's quite startling. They get back to Germany and they're arranging for Nelly to have plastic surgery to restore her face. Uh, Lini wants to go. Well, Lini wants to leave Europe, uh, as uh, as so many Jewish people in Europe at the time they were they were done with this continent, and they wanted to go to Palestine to what was going to become Israel. And she's pressuring Nelly to join her, but Nelly wants to be reunited with her husband, a guy named Johnny, who who may or may not have betrayed her. And for a lot of the film, we're not really too sure what kind of person Johnny is. But but Nelly seems very much still in love with him. Now, the, the situation that these, the whole premise of this film is, uh, the, the premise that this film is built around is that when Nellie gets to the, the plastic surgery done to restore her, her badly damaged face, it ends up leaving her looking a little bit different to what she once did. She's told it's impossible to look the same. She's even offered a completely new face altogether, but she wants as close as she can get. Um, this element requires quite a massive suspension of disbelief because the plastic surgery that we see performed is not even possible by today's standards. But it's an interesting plot device that's been kind of a standard in, in films that use plastic surgery as, as a plot device from the 40s onwards. So it's very easy to, to go with it. Um, and the really interesting situation is that when Nellie's reunited with Johnny, he doesn't recognise her, uh, and she keeps her identity a secret from him. But he wants to get at the money that her her family uh, have. The rest of her family have been wiped out in the Holocaust, and he wants to get at what he thinks is his dead wife's inheritance, money. So he gets this this woman who he doesn't know is really his life a wife rather to impersonate his wife so Nellie is in the position of having to impersonate herself in order to convince people that she is herself 
It's a really curious spin on the you know you, you can't you can't review this film without mentioning Vertigo at least half a dozen times. Vertigo, Vertigo, Vertigo. I think I've used that most of your quote already. So but, fun but, for me. I'll say for you. But um, but you know, Vertigo is a classic scenario of an obsessive man trying to model a woman to look like another woman. But in this case, it's the same woman, and this provides an enormous amount of interesting ways of reading what's going on in this film. It's a commentary on the loss of identity and a fractured sense of self that was happening not just to individuals at this time in history, but entire countries. I mean, Germany as, as, as a country was having to reconcile who on earth are they after the atrocities of the Holocaust. An entire ethnic group like the Jewish people were having to question where do they belong in a world where, where this has happened. Um, you know, the phoenix of the title speaks of rebirth and renewal, and this is what Nelly is going for through but but if you look at the you know the the, the the mythical story of the phoenix it's all about this creature arising from its own ashes the ashes of its predecessor and this film is very much about those ashes as much as the rebirth nearly represents both it's also on a very personal level a commentary on marriage and relationships there's some really fascinating stuff where johnny's memory and ideal of who nearly was is actually at odds with this woman who's in front of him. There are scenes where he has to tell her, no, that's not how my wife would walk. This is what, what your, 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 you, this is how you're meant to walk and behave. So, I mean, yeah, th- this is a film all about identity at a, at a time in history where identity was most threatened and being questioned. The, the visuals in this film are extremely strong. I'm, I haven't been a huge fan of this director in the past. He's very much a director who is considered one of the great modern directors, and I've sort of made peace with the fact that whatever it is about his films that other people are excited by, I'm re- I really struggle. Um, but I, I did like this one a little bit more than the rest. It certainly helps that it's got this classic film noir look. Uh, the repeated use of the song we just heard, Kurt Vile's 1943 song, Speak Low, which is a jazz standard but used beautifully in this film, both as a sound soundtrack and as the key event at the film crescendos to. I mean, most of this film is in service of the final devastatingly amazing scene. Um, there's also the Phoenix nightclub, which features heavily in this film where they go to it. And, and you know, nightclubs in these kind of films have so often been used as this kind of transient and transgressive space. Think of Bob Fosse's Cabaret, which I think this film tips its hat to. Uh, nearly everything David Lynch has ever made and so many film noir films. Um, there's quite a rich wealth of material going on in this film for us to discuss, so I'm going to hand that discussion over right this moment. Yes, well, I mean, this is very Baudrillard, isn't it? It's like the simulacrum, the rise of the simulacrum, like the rise of the of the phoenix. Um, I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was pretty extraordinary, actually. Um, from a visual standpoint, it, it was stunningly beautiful. The use of lighting in this film is wonderful. The use of colour, particularly in those cabaret sequences. I love the way in which in, inside the nightclub scenes we have these repeated um, images of two female dancers you know, performing things like night and day. So you have this... Mm-hmm. The duplicity of the woman in the cabaret space, this idea of the performance space, which of course is mirroring what um, what Nellie's going through at various points. But for me, I think the film is also really about disavowal uh, and personal disavowal and cultural disavowal. This idea, and that's where the film, I think, um, gets away with with its potentially believability stretching premise is that it actually makes sense for the husband to not recognize his wife in the same way that it makes sense for a nation like germany who is now split i mean the the fact that this is all taking place in west berlin to not want to acknowledge its past i think lends the film a sense of credibility so it's not a case of post-world war ii or holocaust germany being used as just a a cheap plot point i think the film is making some very canny political and and cultural comments about the state of play in that time in history 
through the context as well as you know on a, on a narrative level about these these individual characters. And I thought it was really fascinating the way in which the film explores, you know, I guess, the vertigo element of, of him recreating this kind of fantasy and the idea of the woman as representing this fantasy in the same way that this idea of the past, the Germany before the Holocaust, was somehow overly idealised in some way and to try and compensate for, I guess, the loss on, on all those various elements. Um, there are other things within this that I thought was beautiful, but the other thing that I think um, I need to um, stress is that very few films, for me, have endings which are uh, incredibly satisfying. This was an ending that I wasn't expecting when it, when it occurred, and I can't imagine the film ending any other way. It was a pitch-perfect ending. I, I think for the ending alone and that final scene in which you've, you've talked about how, how impressed you were by it, Thomas, I, I just, was just mesmerised by it, and, and it left me with such an extraordinary sort of buzz afterwards. I think this is a really, really polished film. It's a really loaded song as well, Speak Low. Uh, Kurt Weil, a Jewish composer, famous for his work with Bertolt Brecht and uh, um, timeless, immortal works like the Trippany Opera and songs like Mac the Knife and uh, all his Johnnies and Jennies in his songs. And, of course, there's a Johnny at the centre of the narrative here. Uh, that's a song that was very contemporary to the period this is set in and that it is in English and was made for a, a Broadway production, I think, is really interesting too. There's a, 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 some dialogue here between uh, Nina Hoss's character, Nellie, um, and her friend about uh, how, how we can no longer sing in German, that, uh, that, you know, that we can't sing the songs we used to sing, but nor can we even come up could there be a contemporary repertoire let's say just things uh, it's scorched it's ground zero germany who knows how to even live in germany anymore let alone be jewish in germany when no one even knows how to broach uh talking about the holocaust and um and so this whole business uh, in the background too of the idea of the formation of a state over in palestine for the jews is just lurking there we with the benefit of hindsight know how that's going to pan out uh but that that is there as a, a morsel of hope in this film is actually for me really devastating. Mm. It's uh, really potent, and I, I found this an extremely potent film, and um, not just uh, rich in period and detail and evocation. And, and like the recent Bridge of Spies, they went to the Polish town of Wrocław to find a, a replica of Berlin in rubble. Um, they, uh, they, they, this, this seems to me uh, un, uncannily accurate. You just have that sense that this, this isn't some sort of phony set that they've set up. It really seems very convincing. And yet it's exquisitely beautiful, the chiaroscuro lighting. Um, and it's interesting we talk about film noir. It is very noir in theme, but noir was a genre that only emerged around the time that this film is set in too. So, um, uh, but then there's these scenes of the pastoral beauty of the German countryside, and they're exquisite. Uh, the cinematography, again, here, here's the benefit of having regular collaborators. So not just his muse, Nina Hoss, in the lead role, but Hans Fromm's uh, cinematography, a cinema scope, full scope, is it, just beautiful. And uh, uh, yeah, I think this is one, one of the, the best films of the year. I felt very moved by it, but also um, I see a director at the top of his powers, and I think it's just a gorgeous film. I agree with you that this is really an extraordinary movie. It's really, at the, I mean, yeah, this is somebody at the top of their game, no question um, at all. And, and absolutely, I, I didn't realise that he that this was a team that he'd worked with a lot. Um, and I, I was going to mention Hans Fromm as well. I mean, the only other film of his that I know that was not uh, with Petzold is a film that we discussed earlier this year, a documentary called The Green Prince. 
Um, was that this year? Wow. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, and that's the same cinematographer. And that didn't actually leave that big an imprint on me visually. So I was quite surprised no, that it was the same cinematographer. So I think that there's something about this particular team, both in front of and behind the camera. But I believe, Cerise, you, you'll be able to pick me up on this. Uh, Haron Farouk. Is that how uh, Haron Faroqui. Faroqui. This is one of his last projects, I believe. Yeah, is he co- yeah, yeah. He worked on the script, is that correct? He did. He did for uh, the last couple of films where Petzold really looked into German historical matters. Mm-hmm. And, and Faroqui was something of a mentor figure, uh, a great film essayist in his own right. And um, along with other figures like Hamid, Potomsky, part of a, a school of German filmmaking, really interested in probing matters of state uh, governance and surveillance and control uh, and historical, well, actually, a term we, we bandy about a fair bit old cultural amnesia. Uh, and yes, his influence is definitely in there somewhere in the fabric of the, this film's narrative and concerns, definitely. When I was watching this, there was little tiny little bells ringing and I couldn't figure out why until I looked it up afterwards. But it was actually the book that this is based on, the novel that this is based on, was already made into a film in 1965 by J. Lee Thompson called Return from the Ashes. So Mm. feeding into that phoenix. And I love that that little play with the different titles there. I think that's quite beautiful. But that's Ingrid Thulin, who was a regular of uh, Ingmar Bergman, amongst other people, and the great Herbert Lom. Very Mm. different film, changes the story a fair bit. Um, but, I mean, this is rich material that already, so it's a really, really rich story to begin with. And I think that, um, as, as I think everybody's agreed, this is a director really on top of their game with a team that is just, I mean, this is just precision filmmaking here. The, the cinematography, that last, I mean, I, I can't think of a film in recent memory that earned the right to, to an ending like that more like it's just immaculate filmmaking I mean it's just so powerful the last moments it's, it's like you earn the right to that those final moments by watching this film. Other little moment worth noting one of the faces she's offered is that of Hedy Lamarr and uh, she, she passes it over was she crazy but not only was she one of the big great beauties uh, has an extraordinary history in um, uh, the transitional silent to talky area um, and was uh, famous for her... Um, First orgasm yes, on screen, on screen I think. and some full frontal nudity. Uh, mm. Ecstasy. Uh, not Hungarian, yeah, right. but a Czech director. She's, um, she's Hungarian as Austrian, well? Austrian, principally, I think. I don't know why I this. But then she, <laughs> she was famous for her um, work, which led to great uh, benefits for the Allies in World War II because she developed frequency hopping, that's not quite the right term, but technology that enabled... Uh, technologies like radar and nowadays Wi-Fi to exist. She was actually a brilliant inventor and she's, she's just there as part of the fabric of this film and I love that. That scene is so fascinating, again, in terms of what plays out later, but the, the plastic surgeon who offers two, I think it's two famous actresses, of, of which Lamar is one, and, and it's, his justification is not really for the women's benefit but for men. Men seem to like these two actresses, yeah. therefore this should be the logical solution for which face you choose. And again, I thought that was really interesting in terms of that sort of idealised past. I just looked it up, but Speak Low, the name of the musical it was written for was One Touch of Venus, which mm. apparently is a loose spoof of the Pygmalion myth. So a story about a man remodelling a woman to be the desired image of a society woman, and that just fits in with this film so much. Oh, the resonances. Yeah, Mm. it's a very intricate interlinked film. I still find him ultimately a cold and distancing director, but this is by far the closest I've got to embracing one of his films. I have to admit, though, reading about the background of this 
story having its origins in a French 1961 detective novel, there was a little voice at the back of my head saying, what would someone like Brian De Palma or Paul Verhoeven do with this subject matter? Wouldn't that be exciting? More, more boobs is my answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd happily see Verhoeven's take on this. I yeah, loved Black start. Books a few years back. Yeah, yeah that, that was fantastic. Black Book. Black Book. Black Book. A singular. Yeah, what a wonderful Yeah, the one without Dylan Moran. Yeah. This material could be crazy pulpy if you went with it like that, which could be fun. This is actually quite a, you know, a reverential film. But that was my issue going in, knowing a little bit about the premise, mm. thinking how can they pull this off and make make you feel some kind of connection to it or, or believe what's going on. And I think the film, really, what's one of its many masterstrokes is it does. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Josh, tell us about Mississippi Grind. Yes, this is a film from writer-director pair Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, who were responsible for a film a few years ago now called Half Nelson, which starred Ryan Gosling as a drug-addicted school teacher in, I think, a Brooklyn elementary school who befriends one of his younger students, a film which I'm happy to say I gave the full Nelson seal of approval. <laughs> oh, wow. Let's get back on track. Wow. You went, you did that. I did that. Uh, Mississippi Grind um, is part road movie, part buddy film, a little bit like End of the Tour, but it's really strung together with this theme of addiction, uh, which I guess links it nicely back to Half Nelson. But in this case, it's not about drug addiction. It's really about gambling addiction and compulsive gamblers. We have Jerry, played by Ben Mendelsohn, who's a 40-something-year-old, very much compulsive gambler he owes a lot of money to a lot of people and an early scene the beginning of this film at a poker table he meets curtis played by ryan reynolds who is this strangely charismatic enigmatic drifter slash gambler figure while i was watching this film i was trying to think who his character reminded me of and i haven't quite got the perfect pairing but he seems a little bit of a love child between Michael Landon from Highway to Heaven. It's a very obscure reference, I know. I'm showing my age tonight. Yeah. And Paul Newman in any number of roles from The Hustler to The Sting. There's, there's something about his kind of charisma. Anyway, we can come back to maybe why that is later. Anyway, so the pair who sort of quickly form a, a friendship or a bond over, over gambling and storytelling decide to hit up a, a high-stakes game in New Orleans but because of the buy-in, the buy-in stake is so large, they're going to travel down the, the Mississippi to towns and games along the way to make up the money before they hit up this potentially big win at the end. I really enjoyed this film. I think a lot of the strength of this film relies on the chemistry of Reynolds and Mendelssohn, and their characters are great. I mean, Ryan Reynolds is, is another actor who's a bit like Jason Segel. We've typically seen him in sort of comic roles, but he nails the dramatic role. I mean, originally the the um, actor who was cast in the Reynolds spot was Jake Gyllenhaal, which I think was an, an interesting decision as well. They'd switch from, from one to the other. But there's something about the pallid complexion, particularly of Mendelssohn, this sort of sickliness that, we, that he seems to carry off. He did it also in Killing Them Softly, another role in which he's a kind of an addicted-type character. But I think the strength of addiction films rests on a, a kind of a sense of pathos for these two characters, or the, the enigma and the charm of one and the pathos and the and empathy for the other. And I think this, this pair pull it off, and a lot of it has to do with the script. There's something I noticed about Half Nelson is kind of like a street speak. We talked about street speak last week when we mentioned Creed. There we are, I managed to get a mention in the group. <laughs> and I think the writing here really captures that. They, they obviously have a fascination with struggling-type characters, lower working class, people who are addicted. And I think the strength of this film is is it feels authentic 
I guess the other issue with uh, this film as an addiction film, and it's something... In fact, in terms of addiction films, I think I almost struggle more with gambling addiction than any other type of drug or alcohol addiction type narrative this i don't know i don't know what i can't quite articulate what it is about these types of films but my concern with these types of films broadly speaking is the idea of the big payoff at the end you know as you're moving through this film is it going to in some way kind of remythologize this idea of the gambler will finally get their kind of their win at the end and and actually suggest potentially in terms of the value code of the film that maybe gambling does have does pay off it does kind of have its money and i'm curious and maybe this is a point of segueing without giving anything away about the the ending is whether this ending feels in some ways compromised or it manages to maintain that sense of unease surrounding this idea of gambling and their their relationship within that the answer for me i i mean i i agree with you i really liked this film um one of the things i liked the most about it is it's not a remake or even a reimagining but i think that there's a very informal dialogue going on between this film and altman's 1974 film california split um the endings especially are very very again they're not the same but they're very they're in dialogue i think is the best way that i can think to describe it um, California Split, I mean, that the poster art of Mississippi Grind is exactly the same as the poster art for California Split. So this is not an accidental point of reference in this film. That film is, I think, pretty much you could kind of balance the George Segal, <laughs> Seagull, Jason, oh gosh. Um, his character is, is loosely the Mendelssohn figure, whereas the Elliot Gould character from the Altman film, I think, is loosely the Ryan Reynolds figure, Curtis. Um, but again, the ending, I think that they both move towards this particular point that there is this sense there's something really similar going on in what they're trying to get to the heart of, even though the action is slightly different. Um, so my my answer to that, I guess, would be that it's it, it's I don't see that it's um, an ethically complicated. I don't see it from an ethical point of view as I do a kind of more cinematic history kind of perspective. I think that it's very. I think it's a love letter in a sense to the Altman film, but without ripping it off or anything as ghastly or cheesy as those, those kind of accusations. I really enjoyed this film as well, and the, the main appeal for me was that relationship between Ben Mendelsohn and Ryan Reynolds. Like, they're a beautiful couple in this film. The, the, the way they talk to each other is so electric. It's really fun. There's this sense of them very quickly becoming such close friends. That's really quite electrifying, and you do enjoy, you know, it's one of those what we call a, what they anyway call a hangout film, the idea of just you want to be with these guys on the road because they're such good fun. And I really like Ben Mendelsohn playing a lower status character. He's sort of the more less sure of himself, slightly more awkward, bordering on pathetic character as opposed to Reynolds, who is so, so confident. And he just sort of takes him under his wing without any condescension. So what what I think happened with this, because I was wondering as well about how is this going to end, and there's only real two resolutions to the gambling film. You know, they either lose everything and it's this horrific, cruel lesson in life, or, or they win and we still sit there uncomfortably going, gee, what does this say about... Um, going to go out and gamble. Gambling. And I, I got the impression with this film as it went on that the the filmmakers just kept on trying to avoid ending it they just kept on saying let's make some more film because they didn't know how to end it and and i think a lot of that was because they were so in love with these characters as well but they were just as conflicted as say say we were so i felt the 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 ending felt weird to me it felt like they just didn't know what to do and they tried to do something that was going to be satisfying but at least sort of said there's a lesson here that's been learned um I don't know how successfully they pulled pulled it off. I think the weakest part of this film is how they resolved it, but I've got no idea what else they could have done. I find that interesting... 
Do you guys know California Split? No. Because it's such a, like, it's such a clear, like, it's a, it's, I mean, it's really, this film is really clearly referencing, and I don't mean that in, like, a Tarantino way, but it's, it's, yeah, in dialogue. I know I keep repeating that phrase. And I wonder if it only makes sense, that ending only makes sense, if you think about it in relation to California Split. Does that make sense? Not that it's a nonsensical ending without it, but I don't share that sense, but I was thinking about it in relation to California Split quite specifically because there's so many references in the film to California Split. I think it is a balancing act. I think they, mm. they've, they've managed to find a reasonable balancing act. In saying that, though, there's a scene earlier, not that much earlier, but you know that, that feels like that was a natural point of an ending. It's, it's a bit of a downer. It yeah. would have been the, oh, yeah. I'm going to yeah. walk out. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it has a, such an emotional impact as well. So there's almost that temptation that that may have been a more successful ending in some ways. And yet it's weird because at the time I was hoping, please don't end here. Don't <laughs> speak the ending. I want this to happen. And then now here, here I'm complaining about that happening. So I... Yeah, it's true. I mean, the other curious thing is the film kind of hints that at the start there is this idea of luck being a tangible thing, that the Ryan Reynolds character is literally luck personified. Yeah. So there is sort of some inevitable thing that's going to yeah. happen. That's what I mean about that highway to heaven. He, is, he yeah. just walks in, he has no real past, he's this charismatic yep. figure, he keeps talking about all these adventures that he's had. You're not sure if he's telling the truth. We don't really get a, a grounding of him as a kind of an actual figure. It, I, I really enjoy that. I mean, the opening shot, which I think is really fascinating, which I think was a great opening shot, is just of a rainbow. And it's that perfect yeah, symbol yeah, of yeah, yeah. what we project onto that symbol and what it, what it reflects for these characters and how it returns in various guises throughout the film. So, look, I, I, I really like this film. Mm. I'm still not entirely sure that the ending was as perfect as, say, <laughs> the ending in Phoenix was or you know other films. But just the chemistry between these two leads, and I mean both of them, yeah. M- Mendo's, Mendo's almost oh, like my, my go-to broken man now. I mean, he was, I know um, you guys weren't as into Slow West as I was, but I think we were all in agreement that oh, he, he was, was that the, he like, the highlight yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, of Slow West, and I know that I plug this film every week, but Ryan Gosling's directorial debut uh, Lost River. I've got to see it. Um, just see it for Mendo. Like, it's 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 a problematic film. I hate using that word problematic. It's pretty broken. I, I really like it, I think. Is it's, it available in Australia? It is. Uh, yeah, it's on it home entertainment. It's on home entertainment. Oh, okay. I'll kick off next year. If you're into Mendo, it's just, I mean, he's even if he's a strong character, he's still broken in these recent films and there's just I mean he's just superb in this there's film there's a bit of a midnight cowboy feel in this as well yeah, where, definitely, where Mendo is definitely. the kind of the Rizzo character yeah maybe that's why I warmed to it so much yeah, yeah. definitely and, and you know the charismatic figure Ryan Reynolds is sort of the John Voight character yep. maybe this film should have ended with, with a little less naive with, maybe with Mendelssohn <laughs> on a bus just you know <laughs> that's the end. with a harmonica everybody's talking playing. to me yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that brings us to the end of our final review show for the year. Like I said, we'll be back uh, next week. We're going to talk about our favourite films of 2015, specifically the films that were released in the cinemas in Melbourne, so you all have the same frame of reference as us. And uh, I don't think we're going to make any grand statements about the best. We're going to talk about what are our favourites. We'll just end up shouting over the top of one another. You're wrong! You're wrong! Rubbish! I can't believe you like that. (laughs) We talked tonight about the end of the tour, that screening at Cinema Nova through Sony Pictures. Phoenix is on limited release through Man Man Entertainment and Mississippi Burning is getting released this Thursday. Grind. Mississippi Burning is available <laughs> on Entertainment release. You know, I've, I've even got Mississippi Burning written down. <laughs> at, least G- I didn't call it, at least I didn't call it Mississippi Grinder, which I did <laughs> in the green room. Mississippi Grind will be released this Thursday at Cinema Nova 
through Madman Entertainment. Uh, yeah, do tune in next week when we talk about our favourites films for the year. You've been listening to Thomas Cordell, Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller Nicholas. But we're going to say goodnight. You have been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.